I think an interesting approach might be instead to just allocate the amount of water. Here's how many gallons you get based on your square footage of landscaped area. Do what you want with it. You know, give, give the owner, the user a choice on what they do with the water instead. And then you can start to make some decisions just like everybody has a budget, family budget, business budget, travel budget, whatever that is. And then you make choices based on what's going to fit in your budget. And when you start to look at it that way, you start to ask some really interesting questions. Like I mentioned in the beginning of, of our talk, questions like, what are, what are my priorities? Can I prioritize my landscape? Are there high priority uh, areas of the building that I absolutely want to be green and lush all the time? And are there areas of the property that can go dormant? So that if I only have X number of gallons to use, I'll apply that where I think it matters most. And maybe that area behind the warehouse, that grass can go dormant. It's not going to die. It goes dormant. It'll come back. Nobody sees it. But right now, we don't prioritize any of the landscape. We just water all of it. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old-school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Hey, what's going on, my friends? Welcome back to another episode the most recent episode, the episode 123 of the Sprinkler Nerd Show. Today, I am excited to share an interview with you. This is actually an interview where I was in the hot seat on another water podcast called Scaling Up H2O. And I'd say if you're looking for a podcast about water in the water industry that includes industrial water and wastewater, definitely check out Scaling Up H2O with Trace Blackmore. And I'm going to give you a few insights on what we talk about. But I, all, I first want to mention that Trace asks me about my Shark Tank experience. And I know that some of you listening to this know that I was on Shark Tank season two in 2011 with my eco lawnmower. But a lot of you listening don't know that story. And so it is near the end of this episode. If you want to just skip over the water stuff and go right to the Shark Tank story, go ahead. So that's kind of why I'm telling you that right now to keep you interested in listening to the entire episode. But I think that there's a couple things that stood out in my mind when I re-listened to this, uh, the recording of myself and Trace. Number one is that it, it's just awkward to hear yourself talk. Uh, when I listen to these podcasts, I don't listen to all of them back, but when I do, it's awkward. And so I was, it felt awkward for me to listen to myself talk with Trace and I didn't know the questions he was going to ask me. So it is just kind of, you know, my raw answers to his questions and what I, the common theme that I seem to pick up with the discussion is that my answers weren't always technology related. It's like, my answer is more like, yeah, Trace, you're right. You'd think that kind of technology would exist. And it kind of does, but it's kind of either not used or it's very expensive. So it's not every day and it's coming. I, I think that's kind of my, maybe that's my overarching feeling is that the average consumer irrigation system, the technology is not quite available to 
have a high functioning and efficient system. And if we were to compare that to indoor water usage or even just home or commercial energy usage, the utilities and the systems in a house and in a commercial building are pretty tight. They're buttoned up pretty tight. But when you look outside at the at a landscape irrigation system, it, it's all over the place. And I think that it's just a matter of time. We need some better, we need some technology that is easy. And I'm saying easy, like full bold, full bold exclamation point, easy to install, set up, understand, and use so that it actually goes in, people actually use it, they're happy with it, and they know how much water they're using. So when you hear me speak with Trace, it's more like, yeah, man, the, the technology is kind of here, but it's also kind of not here. And the questions you're asking me, Trace, they're great. And I wonder the same thing. We need, <laughs> we need tech. We need it. We need it fast. And it needs to be more efficient and less expensive and easy to deploy and understand for, for the average person. So anyway, let me, uh, let me stop rambling here. I got five kind of uh, one-liners for you that you can pay attention to. Number one, life is just an experiment. Number two, we undervalue water. Number three, why it's not only technology that will help solve the problem. Number four, the water just flows. Number five, rain is money falling from the sky. So there's a bunch more one-liners and I encourage you to listen to the entire episode. And if you're curious to hear about my Shark Tank story, hang on until the end. So yeah, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Trace Blackmore on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. My lab partner today is Andy Humphrey of the Sprinkler Supply Store and self-proclaimed sprinkler nerd. Andy, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Trace, thank you so much for having me today. And I love how you called me your lab partner. That's fantastic. I started doing that uh, when we first started the show and it just stuck. Yeah, I, I actually think life is just an experiment. So in terms of like how I approach every day and what I do, this is just one big experiment. So I'm right, I'm right on board with that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have a lot to talk about today and uh, I'm trying to think where to start, but I want to talk to our audience and make sure that we're all on the same page that regardless of how we're using water, it's everybody's charge to make sure we're using the smallest amount as possible. And uh, I looked up online, of course, Google never lies to us. So we know this is a right answer. Nine to 10 billion gallons of water a day are used in irrigation. And I just find that an incredible number. And I'm willing to bet that most of that irrigation is probably not optimized and there's a lot of runoff and it's not being used properly and the equipment's outdated and all of that stuff. And you're going to tell me, no, I'm wrong. There's rainbows and birds are singing. Everything's fine. No, you're totally right. We undervalue water. And so I think that is an enabler for poor quality irrigation systems and poor operating irrigation systems. And what I find really interesting is that as you drive around your city, your small town, your neighborhood, you likely, as a majority, see poorly operating systems than you do correctly operating systems. 
And here where I live in Traverse City, Michigan, it's right on Lake Michigan. And I see sprinklers running into, you know, late into November, always running in the rain, like really low hanging opportunities to reduce water usage that doesn't take a lot of technology, yet we still let it happen. Coming to the office this morning, I saw that very thing. A matter of fact, a sprinkler head had popped off and it has been running for at least two days. Yeah. So if we were to fast forward, let's say some period of time, I can't say if two years, five years, 10 years, probably more like five minimum, that won't happen anymore. Meaning there'll be technology in that system that immediately shuts it down when that happens. And that technology is available today. It just happens to be very expensive. And, and that's part of, you know, undervaluing water. If water goes up in price, then all of a sudden these technologies become a lot more realistic. But right now they're still a bit more expensive for your average, you know, residential site. I interviewed somebody on this podcast from Israel, and water is very expensive over there. And a lot of the new ways of thinking on how we can, we can better use water comes from there for that reason, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and something as simple as right now the water flows to your building, your house, your building, your park. Water is, in a strange way, unlimited, right? You can turn the water on and it will flow for the most part. And so I think maybe what we need to do is flip that upside down and say, you know, Trace, here's how much water you get, do what you want with it. Because then you can start to make decisions like, you know what, maybe the back part of this property, it can go a little bit, that grass can go dormant. I want to keep the front green. But right now we really don't make any prioritization decisions because the water just flows. And then it becomes just a you know financial dollar decision, but water flows all the time. If you want it, it's there. Yeah, we get asked all the time. Of course, uh, the listeners of this podcast normally cooling towers, boilers, closed hydronic systems. So we're in buildings and facilities working on that. And people will come and ask us, hey, you do water. Well, help us with this irrigation system. So I know sometimes we do get involved with that. So I'm hoping around today's show, we can give people some better information so they can help guide their customers. And ultimately, the goal is we're all using water more effectively. Absolutely. That's the idea, you know, especially when it regards to growing something, right? Growing an agricultural crop or growing a landscape crop, i.e. turf grass, trees, and shrubs, is that there's something called the plant water requirement. And so the goal is really to give that plant exactly what that plant needs to grow optimally. Well, before we get into all of that, would you mind letting the Scaling Up Nation know a bit about Andy Humphrey? Sure. Let's do the uh, 60-second version, which is, I was okay in school, not an A student, but didn't really like it. And so I focused on things that I could be successful at, which is really creative things, building things. So I went to architecture school, switched to landscape architecture school, got into my first job in 2002 as a CAD, you know, CAD jockey for a landscape company, teaching other landscape architects at the company how to use CAD. I met an irrigation professional who's still, you know, my best friend today and sprinkler nerd too, my partner in crime. His name's Paul Bassett. And that's when I learned about this irrigation industry. And one of the first things I asked Paul is, 
how does the irrigation controller know when it's time to water? And of course, 2002, this was 20 years ago, I learned that it operates on an alarm clock because it's Monday at 7 a.m. And so I started to ask more questions. I was very curious about this. And that's, that's really what led me down the path of irrigation. As soon as I learned how irrigation systems worked, I immediately saw an opportunity and stopped doing landscape architecture and went headfirst into irrigation. And, you know, specifically the technology side, which at that time and even today is revolves around the control systems. And so I've worked with many different manufacturers, control systems, uh, implementing them in cities and commercial facilities and bringing this type of control systems to market. And it was really because I saw what was going to happen in the industry and how we were using water and how there really was not any technology in the irrigation industry. Okay. And then, and then you layer on me realizing that I'm an entrepreneur learning how to sell things online in the early 2000s, building e-commerce stores, launching Sprinkler Supply Store in 2010, which I'm now uh, a joint venture with a large company called Site One Landscape Supply. And we have a fully uh, integrated e-commerce stack into their EIP system and into their uh, brick and mortar stores where we can fulfill from the shelf. And so I've kind of you know, went headfirst into the irrigation industry technology and mixed that in with both the hardware side of the industry and the software side. So with all of that, I'm thinking of the sprinkler system that we have here at the office. And it is probably from the early 2000s. And when we bought the building, I think it's a hunter system. Mm -hmm. And it had nothing on it, but as you said, an alarm clock. And I went online and I found that we could add just a rain detector to mm -hmm. it. And just by doing that, we were using a lot less water to irrigate. And with that, I, I can only imagine what they can do today. So here's the interesting thing is they can do more but basically, they're the same. They haven't changed that much. And I you know, applaud you for using a rain sensor because they are a fantastic tool. If installed correctly and maintained correctly, they're very inexpensive, less than $100. They're wireless. They take you 15 minutes to install. And that's really the way that we should look at rain is money falling from the sky. Because when it's raining, you should not be irrigating. And then there's a period after it rains, you know, kind of like a delay where depending on your soil type and how much volume it rained, you can not water for an extended period of time after that. And that's really sort of the next evolution of the rain sensor is it actually dries out pretty quick. You know, the tech in the rain sensor is just simply a contact switch. A little disc swells up, it trips the switch, it turns off. But the rain sensor being in the sky doesn't know how much of that rain landed into the soil and how long it's going to take for that soil to dry out. And so that being said, the next sort of evolution, if you will, that's coming is better and easier to deploy soil moisture sensors. So instead of just detecting what's falling from the sky, it's actually measuring how much water's in the soil? Correct. Yeah, because the rain sensor is the right tool for turning this system off. Because to turn it off, you need something in the sky that can measure rain in the sky. But if you want to know when it's time to 
turn the sprinklers back on, you need a sensor in the soil profile that says, all right, we're dry enough now. Now it's time to come back on. I'm assuming my cheap little 2004 circuit system is probably not able to take that on. So does that mean I need to upgrade the system? It means that there is not really the technology available today on the, what you might call residential and light commercial. This technology is available for your higher end, larger scale properties. And I've been fortunate enough to have helped build a company called Baseline Control Systems, which is now owned by HydroPoint Data Systems. And Baseline has patented soil moisture sensors that we've deployed on all kinds of large-scale commercial and municipal properties. But again, that price point, it's you know in the thousands of dollars, not the hundreds of dollars. And so as we fast forward five years, we're going to see this tech move down into the residential scale where perhaps for $200 or less, you could add, you know, maybe some wireless sensors to your system at your office or your house. Yeah, that seems like that is definitely an improvement. So I look forward to that. So we are not wasting water here or at our home. A lot of our customers will come up to us and they'll ask us how we can be more efficient with water. And one of the first things that we do, and I'm assuming most municipalities have this, but they'll give a sewer credit for the water that is not being returned back to the sewer. And we always ask them to uh, apply for that for their cooling tower and also their irrigation. Is that a thing all over the United States or is that just in certain municipalities? I believe it's all over. However, there are likely municipalities that don't honor that, but that is true. A sewer deduct meter is definitely an advantage. And from what I understand, and you might know more because you're you're more in that in the municipal side, but I believe that something like two thirds of the water bill is sewer right. and one third is water. So you can have immediate uh, deduction by by doing that. What is the equipment that needs to be in place in order for the municipality to grant a credit like that? I believe you just have to apply for the meter and then have a you know licensed plumber install the meter that the city needs, and then they read that meter. So if you have a home or a commercial building, you would have two meters, your water meter and then your water deduct meter or your sewer deduct meter. I'm assuming that there are uh, electronics that will help monitor those meters and probably also report when you've hit the ROI and how much money you're saving. Yes. <laughs> I'm laughing because that's what a normal person thinks. And, and I say that lightly because that's the way it should work, but that's not the way that it actually works today. And that you're talking about some technology and hardware and analytics that's coming, but it's not really readily available today. And so with that in mind, my first suggestion would be to put a meter on the irrigation system or a flow sensor so that you know how much water you're using and get your water bills and track and trend that data. And if you know how much water you're using and you use something simple like the square foot of irrigated area, you can kind of know with a couple calculations how well you're doing, whether you're using 2x the water you should be per square foot or whether you're right on or whether you're not using enough. But most, I shouldn't say most, almost all irrigation equipment today doesn't do any of this. The human has to come in, 
the trained human who knows what it is I'm talking about here has to come visit a site, set all this up and help that property owner, property manager, but it's not readily available in the irrigation industry. That is really surprising to me. Yeah, so it's coming. This You're talking about the next evolution is that data and analytics infrastructure that needs to be added to the irrigation system. Because most irrigation systems are still alarm clocks, a little bit better than that, that turn solenoid valves on and off at a specific time for a specific amount of time. I remember I was so excited when we when we had a sprinkler system. I'd never had one before. And I got on YouTube. I tried to learn everything I could about how to make it use the least amount of water possible so we didn't get runoff. It was just going where it needed to. And I remember I had pie plates that I was using. I'm sure I wasn't doing that correctly. So from the sprinkler nerd, what does everybody need to know in order to properly set up just their system at home? So the first thing they should think about, we're in April right now, okay? So in a, a lot of the country, sprinkler systems are coming on for the first time right now. However, the water demand from the plants right now is not heavy because it's cooler. They're just coming out of dormancy. And what happens with sprinkler systems right now is they get turned on in April and they run the same all season and then get shut off in October, okay? So the same amount of water is applied Monday, Wednesday, Friday, from April all the way through till October when it's turned off. But that's not how the weather works. The weather starts to get warmer and peaks in, let's say, July as the highest water demand time period. And then it curves off again. And so if you were going to be applying the right amount of water, you would use a lot less in the spring, let's say 50% less right now. And then in the summer, you would use more, and then in the fall, you would taper it off. So it kind of looks like a bell curve. The, the actual water usage is like a bell curve, not a flat line. So that is, if you're going to do it by hand, that's what you can do, right? Right now, either go to one day a week or turn your time down by 50%. And then as you go towards summer, start increasing the frequency or increasing the runtime. And then as we go towards fall, start decreasing it. And there are controllers that do that today. So that's called an ET curve, evapotranspiration. And that's the word that describes the water loss through the soil and the water loss through the, the plant transpiration. It's essentially the plant water demand. And you can automate that with uh, something called an ET controller. And that is something that is readily available. And I would say for no more than $200, you can have a residential controller that does that. Commercial properties, again, you're going to look for something that is more industrial and it's going to cost more than a couple hundred dollars, but you can automate the watering based on the weather. Yeah, that's fantastic. I want to look into that as soon as I get off of our interview here. Do you think that we're going to start seeing more public policy where they're saying you cannot use water, you can't have so much runoff, and now we're going to be responsible for doing some of the things we talked about in the very beginning of this interview? Are there municipalities that are thinking about doing that? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, they're absolutely already doing it by either telling you you can only water on odd days of the week or even days of the week, things like that. I think it'll become a question of what's the right approach to that. And I don't know what the right approach is. I think that limiting somebody's time that they can water 
isn't necessarily the right approach because if you can water on Thursday, you could water all day long if you want to. And some people do. They don't realize that there's only so much water that the soil can hold. After that, it's wasted water. I think an interesting approach might be instead to just allocate the amount of water. Here's how many gallons you get based on your square footage of landscaped area. Do what you want with it. You know, give, give the owner, the user a choice on what they do with the water instead. And then you can start to make some decisions just like everybody has a budget, family budget, business budget, travel budget, whatever that is. And then you make choices based on what's going to fit in your budget. And when you start to look at it that way, you start to ask some really interesting questions. Like I mentioned in the beginning of, of our talk, Questions like, what are, what are my priorities? Can I prioritize my landscape? Are there high priority uh, areas of the building that I absolutely want to be green and lush all the time? And are there areas of the property that can go dormant so that if I only have X number of gallons to use, I'll apply that where I think it matters most. And maybe that area behind the warehouse, that grass can go dormant. It's not going to die. It goes dormant. It'll come back. Nobody sees it. But right now, we don't prioritize any of the landscape. We just water all of it. There are companies out there that are catching their runoff and then using that in their irrigation systems. What does somebody need to know in order to do something like that? And what are the pros and the cons of doing that? I think that what a lot of people don't realize is just how many gallons of water a landscape needs. And so you could say the same thing about catching rain. Now, What's interesting about catching rain is sometimes when you catch the rain, the landscape doesn't need it because it just rained. <laughs> and when you're in a drought and you need the water, there's no rain. So it can be a catch-22. And I think just understanding the pure volume of water that, it that the landscape requires and just understanding how much that is. Because if you could have a secondary source, so we like to call those secondary sources, whatever that secondary source might be, then you may apply that to certain areas of the landscape, but you might not use it for the entire landscape because it might not be enough for the whole landscape. I remember seeing a sign where somebody did that very thing and then they put out saying that we're irrigating from a natural spring. So not really, but I think it made everybody feel good. With runoff, with all the things that are collected as the water's running to wherever that reservoir is, do we need to be concerned that it's collecting something that's going to be hazardous to put back on the landscape? Yeah, I believe that every local municipality has their own code of how well that water needs to be treated. And it does need to be treated to some specification. And again, I don't know what those are. It's different for every, every area. And that does add to the cost to treat that water. A lot of times it's treated through the, the pump station or through the pumping infrastructure. If you're at your house and you're collecting rain off the gutter, then you're on your own. You can do what you want with that, I believe. And again, it's not a lot of volume, but it might be enough if you're catching it on your house to just water your flower beds, perhaps. What are some of the things that you want everybody to know that's listening about sprinkler systems? I would say number one is realize the volume of water. Okay, so if you were to look at one acre and the general rule of thumb is that Cool season turf grass requires one inch, okay, one inch of water. And this is also interesting because when you think of a sprinkler system, we all think about time. 
okay, how long is this particular zone going to water for? Well, I set my timer for about 30 minutes every other day. But most people don't have any idea how much water that is. They just know that it's 30 minutes, but they don't know how much they applied because they don't know the precipitation rate of the sprinkler. And so the general rule of thumb is one inch of water you know, per week. And over one acre, that's 28,000 gallons of water, right? One acre inch is 28,000 gallons of water. And most people don't have any idea that it is that much. And that would be per week over one acre. That's a huge number. So knowing that information, what do we do to make sure that everybody can just go home today and they can impact that number? What do they need to know to do that? Well, if they want to go home today and impact the number, let's, let's define impact the number. I'll just assume that means use less water. Yes. Okay. So what I would do right now, since it's April, if you've had a professional come turn on your sprinklers or if you turned them on, I would just leave the controller in off. Okay. And this is assuming you don't have a ET based controller or a, you know, call it smart controller. I would just leave it in the off position and wait until you start to see a little bit of plant stress, then turn it on and start automating with it. But in the spring, a lot of service companies go around, turn on all the irrigation systems, and they don't need to be on. It just fit into the schedule of the service company to go turn them on, and they leave them in auto, but they're still on a schedule. So I would just leave it in off. And we all kind of know when late spring and summer's here, where stuff starts to dry out, we know when that happens. And then I'd flip it to auto, let it run. So obviously using less water, the only amount that you need is the key. How does zeroscaping come into this? Well, I think that zeroscaping is an interesting word because it can mean different things to different people. I like to think of zeroscaping as simply drip irrigation, whether that's inline tubing, drip irrigation, or whether that's micro emitters irrigation. And what we find with landscape is, is that they're different from the East Coast to the West Coast. Okay, so on the East Coast, we plant high-density landscapes. You know, we have foundation plantings right down to the bed edge. Then we have turf grass, very dense plantings. And on the West Coast, you have less dense plantings where you have one plant, 10 feet away, you have another plant, 10 feet away, you have another plant. And so on the West Coast, you have a lot more what we might call xeriscaping, because of that. So you're not going to water that entire landscape bed because the plants don't occupy the entire landscape bed. And so you water the specific plant. So you might run some low-density polyethylene, you punch into it, you put an emitter or two on each plant. And that's kind of the difference between the West Coast and the East Coast. And we do see this on the East Coast, drip irrigation and xeriscaping, meaning micro-irrigation, but the biggest difference is in the West where the density of plantings is much further apart. You really, that is the best way to water it because if you water the entire landscape bed, 50% of that is not occupied by a plant and therefore it doesn't need to be watered. To shift gears just slightly, you are a master at marketing. I look at your website. It doesn't look like the typical website. Of course, you've got the podcast how did you start all that? And uh, what did you use to know what you needed to do? It's, uh, it's an evolution. So I would say practice. 
And with that, so in 2004, when I built my first website, some of the easy web building tools of today didn't exist then. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do it today. I would say that I, I'm just curious. And when I want to know how to do something, I dig right in and figure it out. Meaning do the research, read, watch YouTube, try it, get stuck, do some more research, figure it out, implement it, get stuck again, and just repeat. And if you do that long enough over time, you get better and better and better and things build over time. And that's essentially what happened. I've just been practicing for 20 years. What have you seen as that evolution was taking place as far as your customer base? What was the feedback that you were getting? What did your sales look like as you were experimenting and doing more to educate them? So I think that what's interesting is that the market actually changes. So if we were to think about 2004, and if somebody wanted to buy something online, they went to either Google or Yahoo for the most part. And they ran a search. And that is how all eyeballs came to a website 20 years ago. Basically, from Google, from Yahoo, or maybe they typed it in directly. Now we have a lot more places where people are, you know, you might call it hanging out online. People might discover you through YouTube. They might discover somebody through Instagram. They might discover somebody through Reddit. They might discover somebody through all these different platforms that didn't exist back then. And so that to me is the basically the fundamental change is it's a it's a much more diverse marketplace than it used to be. And what's interesting about these marketplaces that is that if you were to price your items, and I guess I'm saying this for anybody listening that might work for a supplier or have a direct to consumer product, if you price your product for Google to be, let's say, the lowest price on Google, assuming you sell something that other people sell then you're kind of giving up margin potentially through all these other marketplaces. And it's a slippery slope and an easy trap to think you need to be the lowest price item, whatever that might be. And it's very easy to run a Google search and find a few competitors and see, oh gosh, I've got to be priced here in order to be competitive. But that's not necessarily true. And we've kind of built our business and the combination to have competitive pricing, not the lowest pricing, because we also need to make money and we need to be able to have some margin in order to make customers happy. It's been an interesting landscape to watch, to watch the e-commerce landscape change. And I think that in today, in 2023, distributors are poised to, they're in the power position. Okay, so I, I might have uh, opposite thinking of most distributors. They might think they're getting squeezed out. Amazon's taking over. But the, the person who has access to the product and the product on the shelf is the one that holds, you know, all the cards, if you will. The one who has the product is the one who's in the power position. They can't be cut out. They're just not doing anything about it right now. Some are, some aren't. But as a distributor, there's unlimited e-commerce opportunities right now. You do a great job of educating your clients on YouTube. How did you start to do that? And you were very polished now. I'm assuming it didn't start out that way in the beginning. God, YouTube is, okay, just like anything, you get better the more you do it, okay? And, and we, we all get in our own way. 
in terms of doing something for the first time because we have a picture in our head of what we want to do. And typically the first time we try something could be riding a bike. The first time we ride a bike, we might fall off. We can't expect to go win the bike race the first time we get on the bike. You just have to start and try something new and different each time you do it, like a lab, like an experiment to see what happens, to see if you liked it, to see if the audience liked it. And I'm kind of a believer in trying to make little improvements every single time. Because if you did 100 YouTube videos and you improved one thing each time, then that compound effect of 100 little changes becomes really big at the end. And what's interesting about YouTube is that there are a million questions that somebody could have. And some videos that I've made are answering a specific question. But my primary goal with YouTube is actually to try to bring the human element to the digital world so that when someone is buying from Sprinkler Supply Store, more than ever now, I want them to feel like they're buying from people. Like, who are these people? Do I like these people? Do I believe in these people? Do I trust these, these people? And I feel like that's missing from, from the internet. Is On the internet, you're either a picture or a name on a screen, but the actual human part of it isn't there. And I don't see why the digital world has to be any different than the regular world. It's just one world. And part of my YouTube strategy is to try to kind of come out from behind the curtain and say, hey, I'm right here. I'm just a dude. And you have a question here, schedule a call with me to just try to be as human as possible to try to build that sort of authenticity with what we're doing. If someone wants to find out more about what we're talking about, and what I've seen, where should they go? There's two places they can go. If they go to sprinklersupplystore.com on the homepage, you'll see a few videos and those are all embedded YouTube videos. So if they want to watch more videos, they can go to YouTube and our channel Sprinkler Supply Store. So search Sprinkler Supply Store on YouTube. If you want to hear my, what I might call my podcast experiment, that's the Sprinkler Nerd Show. And you can find that on all the podcast channels as well as sprinklernerd.com. You can listen to all the episodes right on sprinklernerd.com. Excellent. We'll have all of that information on our show notes page as well. Normally, I transition to the lightning round questions with my guests. Same questions I ask of all my guests. But I thought we might do something a little different with you because you were a participant on one of my all-time favorite shows. And I thought if you were okay with it, we could talk a little bit about your Shark Tank experience. Absolutely. Love talking about Shark Tank. All right. So I got to know, how do you get on Shark Tank? What did you do? So I don't know how you get on it today, but I was crazy enough to think I could just Google how to get on Shark Tank. This was in 2010. And I Googled how to get on Shark Tank. I found some email address. I mean, it was literally like a woman's name at gmail.com. And I just emailed and totally forgot about it. Six months later, it was about 11 p.m. I was traveling on the East Coast. A phone call came in from an unrecognized number, and I didn't answer it. And then I listened to the message, and sure enough, it was a producer from Shark Tank. So that's what I did. I don't know how you do it today. And I would say the rule probably applies for anything. If you want to do something, just look it up and pick up the phone and call somebody or email somebody. What did that call go like with the producer? So what's interesting about Shark Tank is and again, this was season two, I felt like they wanted to keep me on the edge of my seat every moment, the whole time from the first phone call 
all the way to walking on the stage, it was almost like there's a chance you might not go on the show. Sort of like nothing is guaranteed. If you do well on this next phone call, Andy, then you might get an opportunity to talk to the next producer. So there was this progression of kind of keeping me on the edge of my seat. And then interestingly, I feel like they wrote the pitch because for about five weeks leading up to the taping, I would have a call with a producer. They'd say, all right, Andy, let me hear the pitch. And I'd hear the pitch. And then they'd say something like, you know, the Sharks would really probably like to hear you talk more about, you know, X and if you could be more passionate about Y. So rewrite that and then we'll catch up with you in a couple of days and hear it again. And so they gave me sort of revisions each time. And by the end, what I had was, this is all in hindsight, in the end, what I had was their pitch. Interesting. <laughs> it wasn't my original pitch. It was the producer secretly crafted pitch that I wrote with their suggestions. All right. I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later in in my question. So now they say, this is your taping date. I'm assuming they paid for your traveling expenses and you went out to, where do they even tape it? It was taped in Culver City at uh, NBC Studios, I believe. So what was that like? What was going there like? Okay. So the fun part was, was meeting all these other, you know, inventors, if you will, entrepreneurs. And most of them never got on Shark Tank. That's the other thing that people don't realize is that if 30 people pitch, they might pick three to actually go to air. And again, if you think about what are they selling, they're selling entertainment. Mm-hmm. So again, this is my own perception. So please don't think this is actually real. It's just how I view it is that Shark Tank isn't about the deals. It's only about the deals to entertain the viewers. But the Sharks, they have the whole world of deals coming at them. They, they don't need the Shark Tank deals. They only need the Shark Tank deals to make the Shark Tank show a show to entertain people. And so what they're really selling is amazing entertainment, which is why you like this show, because it is entertaining. It creates emotion. And they do a great job at that. I have never pitched an investor in real life, but from other people that I have met that are either angels or other startup founders say it's nothing like Shark Tank. It can just be a, you know, a cup of coffee with an angel telling your story. It's not, you know, a high pressure pitch situation. And a lot of the high pressure pitch situations, which we tend to see in every small town or a lot of small towns, even Traverse City might have a pitch night. It is usually to, you know, build and market the organization running the pitches, but it's not really for funding deals at that moment. It's entertainment. So you're back off stage. There are 30 entrepreneurs back there. How do they choose who goes on? Yeah, I wish it was kind of like that. So they also try very hard not to have the entrepreneurs talk to each other. Oh. We could talk to each other at the hotel. So we did all stay at the same hotel and they gave everybody the same amount of money Okay, so that there's no unfair advantage to one person or another. And if I remember correctly, the gal that, you know, when she was giving out the money, she explained why. And she said that Shark Tank was considered a game show. So like legally, it's a game show. And because it's a game show, there can't be any advantage for one player, if you will, or one participant over another. And so I think they gave us like $500 or something like that. And we could hang out with each other at the hotel, but then we each had sort of a dressing room. I think that's what you call it. It was just a, a, a room with one couch, 
all white walls and I had to hang out in there all day. I could go down the, go down the hall and like have a snack. Then I'd have to come back to like my sort of holding cell <laughs> before it was pitch time. And then they kind of told us, all right, Andy, you're going you're gonna to pitch at one o'clock, let's say. And then you do the pitch and they guide you, you know, stand here. Then they'd say, walk around right here and kind of make it look like you're really nervous and you're thinking and you're contemplating to kind of guide you so they could take, you know, sort of some of that B-roll. And then you do your pitch. Then you go back to your dressing room. Then they brought in, I don't know if a, a therapist, psychologist, they brought in somebody to talk to me to make sure I was in the right frame of mind. I don't know if this is sort of their legal, all right, he's cool. And if he jumps off a bridge, we had somebody talk to him. So we're off the hook, like kind of almost like that. And then immediately I got in a van and went to the airport. Okay, this is fascinating. I'm so happy <laughs> I brought this up. I know I've seen your episode, but it's it's difficult to go back because I don't have a great streaming service and I wanted to watch that. But if I recall, you did not get a deal. I did not. Correct. Can you tell us the experience that you had? You know, the doors open, you walk out on stage and you pitch to the Starks. What was that like? Yep. And you're given your lines, right? So you've memorized this pitch that producers say is going to be great. The investors are going to love it. And you've memorized this. And what I felt like and what I observed while I was giving the pitch was that I felt like there wasn't a lot of active listening. Hmm. Like I can, we're here on this video call. I can tell you're actively listening to me, but I felt like the sharks were not actively listening it was more like they were thinking of something they could say, or maybe they knew, maybe they didn't know my exact pitch, but they were looking for something they could say to kind of cause some drama, you know, that emotion, make it entertaining versus actually trying to understand what was being said in the deal. And again, it's, it's television, right? It's reality, but it's orchestrated, highly orchestrated reality. And so I felt like there wasn't a lot of active listening. And it was sort of uh, me just being, I guess, naive. If I, if I wasn't so naive, I would have realized I was walking into a television show that is there for entertainment purposes. <laughs> and they were a little harsh on you. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting because I wasn't, I was into the idea of the business, which what they showed on television wasn't exactly what I was pitching. You know, they, for me, I had a eco-friendly lawnmower that I trademarked the eco mower and I wanted to build an environmentally friendly lawnmower company. That's really what I had the budget for was to build an eco mower to get into the, to the market. And they focused on the mower, right? Why would anybody want to buy a push reel mower, blah, blah, blah. And I was sort of there saying, well, look, this entire industry is going to be run by electric equipment in the future. This is how I've started but they focused on the mower part of it, you know? So that's the other thing to remember is I may have been pitching for 30 minutes and they show five and they can do what they want with the footage. It's for entertainment purposes and they do a really good job with the entertainment. Would you do it again? I would totally do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's a very fun conversation to have. Not that I go out to bars by myself unless I'm traveling, but it's, you can have a fun conversation with anyone because of it. What would you do differently now that it would be your second experience? If it was the same product, I would probably do nothing different. And I, again, I would focus on making it to television. 
because most of the people who pitch, and I, again, I say most, I don't know if it's most, not everyone goes to air. And I know someone who had a fantastic product. We still keep in touch. He got a deal, $300,000 deal on tape, but never actually like followed through, never got the money, never made it on television, but on taping, he got, you know, he had a $300,000 deal. And so the, the goal is to be on television, whether you are the pawn, whether you're the winner, you just want to make it to television any way possible. And people ask me, did you get a lot of hits to your website? Did that generate a lot of sales? And that was the other thing that I learned was that I would have thought, yes, that that would have been an amazing opportunity to sell tons of units. But if I recall, there may have only been 15 or 20,000 visitors to my website over that weekend. You know, Shark Tank airs on a Friday, then you have Saturday and Sunday. Let's say it was 20,000 visits. It's not a lot of traffic at the end of the day. And that was sort of my aha moment that media isn't about a one-time opportunity. There's a reason we see commercials over and over and over and over and over again, because you'd rather be in front of somebody many times than just here today, gone tomorrow. I saw that once. I never saw it again. You need, you need the repetition. You need to be in front of somebody often. Well, it seems like you took what you learned from that and you started applying that to your own firm with all the marketing that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I had already started Sprinkler Supply Store that same year. Yeah, I started Sprinkler Supply Store June of 2010 and we taped for the show in November 2010 and then it aired in 2011. But that, you're exactly right. So I took what I learned about e-commerce and the eco-mower was my third e-commerce business. And then I said, all right, how can I do this for my industry? I know distributors. I know the products. How can I take my e-commerce knowledge and apply it to my industry? And that's when I started Sprinkler Supply Store. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That was fascinating. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a great show. Highly entertaining. <laughs> Andy, once again, if someone wants to find out more about you, where should they go? I would say go to sprinklersupplystore.com and then visit sprinklernerd.com. Sprinkler Nerd is my podcast and Sprinkler Supply Store is my e-commerce store. And you can reach out to me directly anytime. We'd be happy to talk to you about B2B e-commerce and direct-to-consumer e-commerce and how you might be able to layer that on top of a wholesale distribution company, as well as irrigation technology and how you might be able to provide some better sensors and data analytics right at your commercial building to try to reduce your water usage. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Thank you, Trace. Really appreciate it. 